This is Toastcaster, podcast for Toastmasters. Your host, Greg Gazin. Episode 71, The Art of Public Speaking, with Russ Dantu and Lance Miller. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Toastcaster, podcast for Toastmasters. We have a couple of special guests here today. From Glendale, California, we have Lance Miller. He's a 2005 world champion of public speaking, a nine-time district winner. He has over 13 years of competition experience and over a decade of coaching. Along with Lance, we have Russ Dantu from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He's a six-time district winner and a finalist in last year's 2015 world champion of public speaking. He's won contests at the district level in humorous table topics and evaluations. And also, these guys are regulars on this show. This is the third time for both of them. I'm almost thinking people are going to really start to wonder here. Russ and Lance, we're talking about your new CD, The Art of Competing. It's a collaboration. And this particular case, it's almost like a mentee-mentor situation or a coach-student situation. Russ, there's a funny story as to how this came about. Why don't you share that with us? Well, thanks very much, Greg. And yeah, as everybody knows or, or should know, I guess, I was coached by Lance last year, had the pleasure of working um, with the 2005 world champion. I enjoyed the experience so much that I took a bold step and approached Lance after and said, you know, I would love to record a product with you. And Lance was very open to it. We set it up. I'm in Calgary. Uh, Lance is down in Glendale. So he set it up on his computer and we, we did several sessions. We recorded this thing, I don't know how many times, but we couldn't quite get everything clear it wasn't the quality wasn't quite what we wanted and everything after recording it and going yeah that's great and then it was like no it's not great so we went back and forth a few times so by the time we actually did this we knew this material inside and out it was really really good so we ended up uh, lance came up to calgary for an event he stayed at my home which was really cool having a world champion stay in your house and we recorded it right in my kitchen so it was uh, it was a beautiful thing it sounds like it was a very high-tech setup too kitchen table nothing like that <laughs> Greg, let me jump in here for a second. Just as a note to the listeners, a lot of times people don't understand the amount of work it actually takes to put a product together. And there, I have recorded so many sessions, so many talks, and I think, okay, I'm going to just record this one. I'm going to put it on a CD. I have to sometimes do them 10, 15 times to get a recording that works, that there's a problem with a technical problem, or there's I had a baby sitting in the front row of one of my talks who was crying. And I was like, this was the talk I was going to record. And I've got an 18-month-old baby that somebody brought and is crying through my talk and I couldn't use it. <laughs> so you never know what's going to happen. And I just, anybody who's looking at recording a CD, which is a lot easier than a DVD, which I've done, there's a lot of work a lot of time. It takes a lot of cuts to actually get one that works properly. You get worried when the takes start ending in the triple digits. <laughs> <laughs> Lance, what's what's the CD about? It's really about the competition experience. For for me, it was a mindset. When you go into a competition, it's very easy to get very emotionally connected and focusing on wanting to win. And your priorities can get askew because I talk, you know, people come in and they're looking at the trophies and they're thinking, I'm going to get this title. And really, to me, it's about challenging yourself and developing yourself as a speaker and the personal growth you get from that and refining your messages. And it was really a pleasure to work with Russ last year because I, I watched 
a good speaker becomes so much better through the process. And I work with a lot of people. And one of the most frustrating things as a coach is when you're working with someone and you're giving them the, what I consider to be good advice. I'll go out on the limit and say some true jewels of wisdom sometimes. And they, they don't change. They just keep doing the same thing they were doing. And Russ really picked up the ball and ran with it. And I watched him on the international stage last year just give one of the best speeches I've ever seen him give. And it was just very rewarding for me to be able to experience that with him. And, and really, so it was about our experience. It's about what is the mindset in comp- competing? What are some of the pitfalls? What are the really important things to focus on? And that came from yeah, my 13 years of competing and losing my international speech contest at the club for nine years and all the things that I went through before I finally made it onto the world stage. Lance, what are some of the takeaways? Just a couple of them. I think the biggest one is you have to hire me as a coach. I think that's probably what it was, wasn't it, Russ? That was it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely. That was the I, only purpose of the CD. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, not at all. That, that, it was really, I get so many requests from people, and I'm sure Russ does too, because how much he's competed and he's developing his own iconic status in this area as well. I think it's really wanting to share with people, when you go into a competition, what is the mindset? And a couple takeaways, the importance of losing and learning from that experience. So many Toastmasters I've met lose a contest and they feel it's unfair, and many times it is. They feel the judging is inaccurate, and many times it isn't. <laughs> I always say losing contest and bad judging made me a better speaker, and that's really the mindset I want people to get is if you leave it up to the judge, you're leaving it up to somebody else. You need to determine if that speech is going to work or not, and it has to be so good that nobody is going to say it wasn't a good speech. Is one of them. It's how to practice and prepare the speech, how to use the Toastmasters clubs, because in Toastmasters People love to rewrite your speeches for you, and most of them don't know what they're doing. And there's a certain way that I tell people when you go out to the clubs, here's how you work the clubs, here's how you look for consistent feedback across clubs, because I've seen people go out and they get feedback where everybody gives them an evaluation, and they come out confused and sort of spun in this dizzy disorientation on their speech. And I go, you can't do that. You have There's a certain process I put together that worked for me, and I, I I had Russ do that last year. I think it worked very well for him as well. Those those are uh, some of uh, just a few of the takeaways. Now, Russ, the CD is primarily a Q&A. So you're basically interviewing Lance. You're also interjecting with a number of your experiences. Did you come up with the questions primarily based on the things that you had asked Lance along the way? How did you decide what questions you were going to select on for this particular CD? Well, that's a great question, Greg. Thank you. It was really interesting because as I was going through this journey with Lance, all of these new discoveries for me came along. And as they came along, I was making notes on it. And then going through the process and the contest themselves, I was noticing things that were, that seemed to be happening in the contest. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I haven't put much thought into that before. So I just started compiling a list of questions that I thought were valuable for anybody competing. A lot of them, are, I, I would say, are, are almost advanced techniques. They're not your basic when you go in and people evaluate you for a speech and say, oh, you should do this, you should do that. This is more on the content of your speech, um, what you're looking for in your speech and that. So I thought we came up with some really good 
things for competing that are out of the norm. And the, the other thing that I've learned from several people that have spoken to me after listening it, to it have said it, it's not just about competing, though. You can use these principles in any speech you're building for a better presentation. So that was uh, very good to hear as well. Absolutely. That leads me into perfectly into my next question, because on the CD, Lance refers to competition as the third leg. And I think when people look at the title, The Art of Competing, they might say, well, I'm not competitive. I'll never win. Why should I bother? Lance, what are your thoughts on that? Well, simply what I experienced was I got really comfortable in my club. You know, I first joined the club. I was nervous of, you know, the first five or six speeches. And as I started developing my you know, getting through my stage fright, developing my speaking acumen, I became very comfortable in the club. But if I had to speak outside of the club, I was a wreck. <laughs> I remember being so nervous at an area contest because there's people I don't know and I'm competing and someone is going to be chosen as the best. Really, in our development as speakers, it's constantly pushing ourselves outside our comfort zone. And it's like it's very easy to get in a comfort zone in a club where we don't really get the challenge of a new audience. That's what I saw with the competitions. It kept putting me in front of new audiences, and not only just a new audience, a new audience with, let's say, five to eight speakers, and someone's going to be picked as the best. And that puts this completely different pressure on you that you have as a speaker. And I will just tell you, the competitions I've done are what really allowed me to go out and speak corporately and outside of Toastmasters because it gave me the confidence that no matter what happened, I could get through it. I, I always say there, there's no corporate presentation I've ever done that was easier than a competition. But the competitions gave me the confidence to go out and handle a corporate audience or a, a non-Toastmasters audience from that standpoint. I do this all the time with people who I coach. And a lot of times they're, they're going to either an area or division, sometimes a district contest, and they write back and they said, oh, I didn't place. That's the, only, that's the only thing in the email. And I always ask them two questions. They said, okay, great. What did you think of your speech, and what did you learn from the process? And I wind up getting this two-page email back from them about how much they grew, what their experience was. It was the best speech they'd ever given, even though it wasn't where it needed to be. They improved so much, and that's what the competitions are about. They're not about putting plastic trophies in your garage. I have a garage full of them, and I can vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Russ, why did you compete? Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. This year, I did not compete, and, I, and I'm missing it. I love competing. There's a rush that comes with it of taking you out of that comfort zone. You actually get those butterflies going in your stomach. And when you make it to the world stage, boy, that's a very, very special feeling. And uh, I don't know the feeling of becoming a world champion yet, but I hope to one day experience that as well. But just the opportunity to speak in front of 2,400 people in Las Vegas and share a message with them and have, you know, people come up to you after and say, what a wonderful speech. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're touching lives and setting personal bests, always pushing yourself, I think that's why I compete. I just, I just love the thrill of being on the stage in front of people and setting new personal bests for myself and meeting new people. And yeah. For those of you who want to hear Russ's background, there's uh, two podcasts that talk about when he won at District and was heading to Las Vegas and then the experience in Vegas. For our listeners today, Russ, what did you learn about yourself in the process of competing? Wow. Well, one thing I learned for sure is I still have lots to learn. And I think it, it's, you know, we can talk about lifelong learning, but it, it, it's so true. I thought I was a pretty good speaker. Um, I've had some success along the way, 
But then working with Lance, I, I realized where I was and where Lance is. And there's a reason why Lance and the other champions are champions. They're at a different level. So you've got to be humble and, and realize that there's always someone out there that knows a lot more than you do. And if you're willing to learn from them and be coached by them, then you can really pick up your level as well. And I, I grew as a speaker so much uh, in last year's competition. It, it was a fabulous experience. Lance, in terms of you've coached many people, uh, is this sort of the same kind of vein, same kind of theme in terms of why they're competing? A lot of times I think that people have all their own personal reasons for competing. And like me, a lot of people have the dream of being a world champion. I had that dream, but quite honestly, I was wanting to attain the level of competence of a world champion. That was really what my drive was. It wasn't that I wanted to walk around with the title. Although the title's cool. <laughs> I'll put it this way. The title's cool in Toastmasters. Outside of Toastmasters, people go, wow, I didn't know they had that. You know, it's like, I don't know what's involved with that. I'm sure there's a lot of work. I always say, you know, inside Toastmasters, it's a little bit like you have your rock star status. Outside of Toastmasters, it's like, you know, you raise the prize pig at the county fair. People go, I don't know what it takes to raise a pig, but I'm sure there's a lot of work in it. Not and not, not to degrade the title from that standpoint, but the, I remember, you know, my many years uh, coming up the ladder and looking at world champions and the speeches. And like I said, I wanted to be competent. I wanted to be able to speak on a world stage and impact audiences. And I was using the contest as my developmental tool and my testing tool to see if I was there yet. But th that was what, that was one of the things I see. But I, I think a lot of people get in it because they do have a little bit of a competitive edge. They do want the recognition for being a good speaker. Most people I don't feel get in it necessarily because they go, I really want to challenge myself and find my weak points. That, to <laughs> me, is the correct attitude to go in with it. You know, as no. I said, I lost for nine years at my club in the International Speech Contest. Now, I'd gone to district and won table topics and speech evaluation three times, but I would never couldn't get out of the club for international. And I was feeling at that level that I was like the best speaker in the world. And if I could just get in front of an audience that had a high enough IQ to understand my brilliance, I'd be fine. <laughs> As Russ says, there's a lot of humility that comes in this process. It was really embracing, embracing my true condition as a speaker, my true abilities as a speaker, and being willing to look at the fact that I had something to learn. And that's what I try to instill in people when I coach them, is that this is a little bit like running a 10K. And you exercise every year, the 10K comes to town, and you go run it. And the question is not did you win the 10K, it's did you better your time this year. When I coach people, I try to go, let's just have you be a better speaker at the end of this competition. It's funny because I competed not by choice. <laughs> <laughs> my first year as a Toastmaster, our club would traditionally have a barbecue in the summertime, and I gave a humorous speech. And then after the speech, my vice president of education said to me, he said, you know, would you like to try that speech again, perhaps? And he gave me some suggestions for improvement. And I said, sure. And so he said, okay, so in three weeks, we have the humorous speech competition, and I'm going to put you, sign you up for that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know that no was not an option. And then, of course, after a number of years, I can. I was a district executive, so I wasn't really, I didn't really qualify. And then after I had finished my immediate past district governor year, my club president came up to me and said, Greg, you know, you really should compete. You know, should's a word you don't normally use in Toastmasters. And I said, no, no, I don't, I don't have time, blah, blah, blah. Oh, kind of shamed me into it. So I did compete. I did manage to make it third in district and humorous. There you go. But this isn't about me. This is about you guys. Russ, I'm going to put you on the spot. Why did you pick Lance 
as your coach. And you know what? I've worked with um, Craig Valentine before. Loved the experience. He's fabulous. Um, done some work with Darren LaCroix. He was fabulous. I, I think all of the champions, they're champions for a reason. You've got to find the one that works for you. Um, in 2010, when I competed, uh, I was quite distraught that I didn't go on from the semis. I have a different mindset now, but back then I was quite distraught. I was in the swimming pool in Palm Desert, and there was Lance Miller. That was the very first time I met him, and there was about eight of us standing around in the pool with Lance, and uh, he just talked and talked and talked about contests and, and his thoughts on it for about two hours with us. And I thought, if anybody, uh, a world champion is going to take two hours out of his time, you know, when you've got Toastmasters around them all the time, nagging them for pictures and doing this and that, I thought that was pretty fabulous of and then uh, he was brought up to a District 42 convention up in Grand Prairie, and I got to spend a little bit more time and see Lance in action there. After that, it was a pretty easy choice for me. Our current district director, Carolyn Caldy, um, I had a chat with her, and she uh, mentioned a few of the, the champions and that, and at the top of the list was Lance, and I said, yeah, I think Lance is just the natural fit, so... For, for this run, and um, I mean, I wouldn't hesitate to use Lance again either, but uh, I'm sure glad I made that choice. This sounds good. Now, Lance, you had mentioned quite often people will hear feedback and not take it to heart. They won't do anything about it. They get their little slips at the end of their meeting, kind of tuck them away, never look at them again. What was your challenge dealing with Russ? I'm sure it wasn't all rosy. <laughs> the thing I work with is you have to own your speech. You have to believe in your speech, and I tell people it's your speech. It's not my speech. I can take the speech. I can take most people's speeches, quite honestly, and I can write them so they would work and be a really good speech, but that's not their speech. It, they have to own their speech, and there were some points, again, this was a year ago, so I don't remember the specific details, but I don't know, Russ, he had one speech he was working on, and I was talking to him, and I said, well, I'm not sure this is the correct speech, but that's really for you to you to determine, and one of the big things I work with you have your mechanics of speaking, which are the opening body and the conclusion, your vocal variety, stage movement, all the mechanical aspects. Then you have your message, which is senior to the mechanics. But then senior to the message is something I call your life force. It's your belief, your authenticity, your personal emotional energy, your conviction and passion for that subject. And that's what I focus on with the speaker. And I really felt I, I never want to squash or invalidate that life energy or the, the purpose that the person has behind the message that they really want to deliver. So I was going over that with Russ on a couple of things. And I said, hey, if this is the speech you want to deliver, then this is the message you have to give. Go out there and give it, but let's see where it is. And he went out and gave the speech. I don't know how many times you gave it, but I know we talked a couple weeks later and you go, hey, you know what? This actually isn't coming together for me. I actually have something else that I really want to say along that line. And I wouldn't say that there was necessarily anything difficult that I remember or cumbersome or troublesome working with Russ. It was just the process we go through. But that's my attitude on it, too. It's like the speaker, not the coach, the speaker has to confront and address their inabilities, their confusions, their lack of clarity in their message. And they have to come through that confusion, that inability, to a point of clarity and a point of ability. And it's really my responsibility and my duty as a coach to help them walk that path to a higher level so they really own their message themselves. And as I said, I can sit down and write the speech and give it, but that's not what this is about. And sometimes it's frustrating for me because I go, just say it this way, you know. And what also happens, I know, Russ, there are a number of things. You went out to clubs, you tried it, you came back, we talked about it. What's the feedback you're getting from the club? 
And just because I think it's a good idea doesn't necessarily mean it's a great idea. We have to go out and try it out on audiences and see what happens with it. Greg, to be honest, I don't remember anything particularly troublesome uh, other than the accent that I had to deal with all the time to try to understand what he was saying. Eh, eh, eh. I was just trying to generalize. I'm sure people come to you and go, this isn't working. And then they ask, well, what should I do? And you go, well, it's kind of like the Cheshire Cat, right? The Cheshire Cat and Alice in Wonderland, and where Alice asks, you know, where, which road should I take? And the Cheshire Cat says, well, where are you going? And she says, well, I don't know, in which case any road will get you there. It's obvious that you can certainly give them the words to use, but it has to match the message. And I think also you mentioned in the CD, and I think you've, we've heard this commonly before, is sometimes a speech will be given where there's either no clear message or there's more than one and they sometimes conflict. Exactly. Now, one of the things I want to just clarify is one of the things I try to work on, and I think Russell backed this up, is as a speaker, I'm really working with the person on where they're trying to go with their speech because that dictates the whole structure, storyline, all the rhetorical devices you're using is what is that final takeaway? That's what I'm focusing on. And the thing I, I have experienced and I see this with speakers all the time. And quite honestly, it, I did this for years in my club. It was one of the reasons I was losing contests all the time. I kept trying to come up with a great speech with a great message that I thought the audience would go, wow, that's just the most incredible message. And it had nothing to do with me. It was just some story about Martin Luther King or somebody that survived in World War II in a life raft for, you know, 120 days. It had nothing to do with me. What I really look for is what is my message I want to tell the world? And I really try to work with my anybody I'm coaching. What do they feel in their hearts that they really want to communicate? And then once we get that, then we can start crafting the speech. And the other thing that I, I think it's in the CD, but I say a speech almost takes on a life of its own. You create this thing, and it's like you have created almost an entity that is now alive, separate from you. And I've watched speeches develop, incubate, or whatever you want to call, <laughs> into creatures that I never thought they would work into as once I developed that. You know, it's amazing the hidden hidden messages many times that are in a speech and we start a speech and there's three levels down is where the real message is, but we haven't peeled the onion that far in our soul to get down to that message, but that's what's actually driving the force. And as we go through the process, we can finally get down to it. And I experienced that, quite honestly, even my world champion speech, I was constantly, as I say, the proverbial peeling of the onion of me trying to get down to that core message I wanted to communicate, which really came down in the end that we'd just solve all the problems in the world if we were to find and recognize what's correct in people rather than always pointing out what's wrong. And we'd have a nice place to live if we did that. <laughs> uh, just one other point I, w I want to touch on over here too, and I talked to Russ about this and he was going, oh boy, it's on the CD, but I I've never had enough time to put everything in the speech that I wanted to put in it. And there's many things that inspire a message. And just because it inspires us doesn't mean we have to put it in the speech. We don't have time for that. I had about 20 minutes of material. I had to carve down to about six minutes. You know, I was telling Russ, it's like picking your favorite child sometimes. You have stuff that you really want to put in your speech, but you, it won't fit. And it's difficult. It's painful to pick one story or one point over another because you love that point so much. And I just had a speech with a guy I was writing and that I was, that I was working with uh, this year. And he sent me the speech, and we he went through it two or three times, and I just sort of took it, and I said, okay, I'm going to work the speech. I'm just going to give you a, a summary of how to put this together. And I threw out a bunch of things because we didn't have time for him, and he called me, and he says, oh, so he goes, and in the email, I said, look, 
sometimes you got to pick your favorite child. And he goes, oh, you threw out some of my favorite things. And when I read the speech, I realized they were taking too much time to tell. So these are tough choices you have to make. You have five to seven minutes to start and end that speech. You don't have time for 10 minutes or 20 minutes of material. And those are tough calls that have to be made in the process. I was thinking about that first speech I did way back when at that barbecue. happened to be the same speech that I used at the district level. They were totally different. And throughout the various maybe 150 iterations, there were a couple of phrases that were in there that a month before the district final, I decided I had to scratch them out. <laughs> it was the hardest thing that I could ever do. Russ, it sounds like Lance obviously convinced you to take those couple of key nuggets out of there and almost like throwing your, your baby out with the bathwater. Did you feel at first that was a huge mistake or maybe what would you say might be one of your biggest mistakes that you felt you made? I think one of the biggest mistakes I made was my district winning speech was called the right thing to do. And that's the one that Lance was just talking about and wasn't sure that it was strong enough. I didn't think it was strong enough. When I won district, I was a little surprised. I just kept saying, I don't get it. People are really liking this message. People were coming up to me and saying, that is a great message and everything. Lance asked me a few questions. I can't remember exactly what they were, but I could not answer them. And that was a pivotal point in me saying, okay, I'm going to try this a few more times. <clears throat> and I, I did. I traveled around the district. I went to Lethbridge. I came up to Edmonton. And after that, I made my choice that I was dumping the whole speech, not just a couple of my favorite phrases or lines. It was the whole speech. And I moved up the speech I wanted to use in the finals. I moved that up into my semis. So where did I make the mistake? I didn't make that decision soon enough. Because what happened was my semifinal speech was in pretty good shape by then, by new semifinal speech, the one I wanted to use in the finals but moved it up to the semis. It was in good shape by then, but then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now I need to write a final speech. And when I first started writing my final speech, and it was a message near and dear to my heart about my guidance counselor, Mrs. M, that helped me through some tough times in junior high school, a lady I still see to this day, it started off at over 1,500 words. That was about the third week in July that I started writing that. So there was just not enough time to get it to the level it needed to be on the world stage. And I remember the day after the semifinals, the one on the Thursday, on Friday, Lance was kind enough to meet with me again. We found a ballroom. I'm up there with notes in my hand because I do not know my material well enough. I know it. It's there, but what I need to do. So Lance spent a couple hours working with me, and he goes, Russ, uh, you've got 24 hours until showtime. That means you could practice this speech uh, over 100 times. I'm, I'm suggesting you do it 20 times. So I actually did that speech 40 times that day. I was extremely happy and proud of the way it turned out. I knew going onto that stage I did not have enough levity in there, and I think that's a key component to being successful on the world championship stage. So I knew it was lacking that. I didn't have the time to find the little humorous anecdotes that would have been good to add to the speech. And so that's my one regret. If I could do it over again, I would have made that decision a lot sooner so that I had more time to work on that final speech. Obviously, you did something right to make it up to the top 10. <laughs> Lance, what are maybe just one or two thoughts in terms of some of the mistakes that competitors or speakers make? I think one of the mistakes they make is they underestimate the amount of actual feedback they need to get. They hang on to their own ideas too much. 
And it was interesting. When I was competing, I, I actually, I had people in my club that were helping me. I had a lot of people giving me feedback, but I hadn't gone outside and hired an individual coach or anything like that and said, okay, I want you to do this. And one of the reasons was, as I said, I was wanting to develop my own competence. I do a lot of communication training. I do a lot of, we'll say, self-development work. It's not like I just was going to wing it on my own. I do a lot of things to improve my skill sets in life, and I'm applying those in Toastmasters all the time. So I'm pushing my personal envelope quite a bit. But I was in the audience when Darren LaCroix won in Anaheim in 2001. And Darren had come to speak in my home district, and I talked to him a couple of times. And he was at a regional when I in Las Vegas, when I went over one second, was disqualified. I spent more time with Darren, and I just called him. And he goes, hey, I'm running out the door. And I said, hey, I'm competing. What do you recommend? Do you have any insight? And he just said, he said two things. He said, crave feedback was one of the things. He said, get as much feedback as you can and give that speech to as many groups as you can. And he goes, I got to go. <laughs> that was the extent. To be honest, I went, that's actually something I probably wasn't going to do. Because like a lot of people, I thought my speech is really cool and it's great and I just want to get on stage and win. Because of that, I wound up giving it to about 35 clubs. I gave it live. And what I mean is I wasn't always in front of an audience, but I delivered that speech on stage live. And I'm not talking about rehearsing in my living room. I'm talking about in a speaking environment. Many times it was by myself or I had one or two people there over 200 times. And so what I see a lot of people do is they're not willing to put the practice in to find every weak point in it. And what we were talking about, they'll hang on to things they like. And one of the things I've had people ask me, what do you think the difference is between a champion and somebody else? And there's two primary things that I really think that those of us that make it to the final stage have. One is we're not hanging on to anything. We're looking at what works and we'll sacrifice our favorite sayings if they don't work. So it's like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We're not, we're not going to hang on to something if it doesn't work. We'll change it to make it function. The other thing is I, I feel I got out of this was that no matter what the competition was, no matter what the barrier was, it wasn't over till it was over. And I would still put more into it to put a better speech together. And I look at football players or in Canada, hockey players or whatever, <laughs> and you look at people that are truly champions, the, the game isn't over till the game's over. And they keep playing right up to the end. And there were times in the past where that's all I had. And when I sort of got what I talked about, more of a champion attitude on it, I go, no, it's not over. I'll change it. I'll make it happen. I'll, I'll put more energy into it. I'll be, I've got more bullets in my gun. I can use whatever. I will continue to improve this thing to the level where it would be a, it would be a winning speech. I think lack of preparation is one where they underestimate how much they have to really work that speech. And the other mistake is hanging on to things that they like, even though the audience is not telling them that they like it. I see people get very fixed many times in what they created, and they really like that thing. And I, I went through the same emotional, mental exercise of writing things that I thought were brilliant that nobody else could relate to. And I had audiences whose IQ is way too low to understand how brilliant it was, and I had to dumb down my speech. <laughs> Lance, I guess you like to laugh at your own jokes, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Russ, we talked about how you had certain things in your speech and you loved them, you had them in forever, and you finally eventually got rid of them. With respect to being able to deliver your message or deliver your speech, out of curiosity, how much of your speech do you actually memorize? And that, that's a great 
question because there is a difference between memorization and internalization. So I do believe and encourage people that I'm coaching to have a solid opening and closing where it is memorized. For the closing, I have two closings just because if your time goes a little longer than you thought, the audience reaction is bigger and you need to shorten your close. I try to have a second close ready just if I'm worried about the time. As for the rest of it, I mean, there's key phrases that you use, your core message and that, that you obviously use in there. But the rest of it is just, I, I sort of go with the flow. However it comes out, it comes out. I don't memorize it word for word. You'll get, you'll get lost. If you have a, a quick blank spot happen in your mind and then you all of a sudden you're the audience can actually see you going back and you're going okay I was at that word in that sense and that's that and and they're following you that way so you're setting yourself up for failure I believe if you're memorizing every single word of the speech yes I experienced that at the district level I took some sage advice well I sort of took some sage advice I kept tripping up on something that I had changed so I decided I'm just going to back that part out and when I came to that fork in the road at the district it was like I couldn't remember where I was, so I ended up repeating myself. It was pretty transparent to most people, but for me, mm. I knew it was there. Lance, I was just thinking, you were talking about Darren, and I know on the CD you talked about the term disruptive thinking. I think in this, on the CD you, were, you mentioned both Mohammed Katani and also Darren LaCroix. How does that differ from, let's just say, a unique message? I think it's two different things. I think you, a unique message you need, when you're on that stage, you have to have something that the audience remembers from you that's specifically from you and in getting that unique message across you have to disrupt their thinking in the process of it in some way and I mean I remember my first back when I was competing we had regionals right and we had three speeches and everything I went to the regionals the first time in 2002 and I had this speech about overcoming my barriers to achieve my goals which first of all totally lacks clarity and there were eight speakers, and if you hear my story, I thought I won the contest, and when they were announcing the winner, I was standing up, and I hadn't even <laughs> placed. Okay. <laughs> a gentleman who's a dear friend of mine now down in San Diego, who I competed with several times, Jim Tucker, had won, and I couldn't believe it. And when I got home, and that was a, this was a very pivotal loss for me in my speaking career, but when I got home, one of the things I looked at were all the different all the different speeches, and seven of us had speeches about overcoming our barriers to achieve our goals. All our own stories, but they were all the same fundamental message, and that's one of the things I learned was a unique message that is also has, has great clarity and precision to it, so it's not a broad general message about overcoming fear or something like that. No, it's something You've got to, like flipping the light switch in the mind of the audience, and that's where the disruptive thinking comes in. And that is a matter of not trying to convince the audience of the correctness of your message, but getting them to experience the message through your speech. And that's what I saw. One of the things I said Darren did, and I talked about this on the CD, Darren fell down on the stage. And he's the first person that did that, to my knowledge, a lot of people in competitions didn't understand what Darren did with that. They saw him fall down. They didn't realize that the falling down was a mechanism to disrupt our thinking because he stayed down. I was sitting in the fourth row, and I'm going, get up, get up. Come on, you're killing your speech. Get up. You're staying down too long. And then he stands up, and he said, do you think I stayed down too long? And I go, yeah. And he goes, have you ever stayed down too long? And at that point, it was like somebody hit me with a 100-pound sack of flour of all the times that I had been defeated and I didn't get back up. 
And he definitely said he got me to experience that message. And Muhammad Katani did the same thing last year when he opened a speech lighting a cigarette and then spewed up all these facts about cancer that were completely false, but he didn't tell us they were false. And I'm sitting there going, I didn't know that. I, my gosh. And I questioned my own knowledge. And then he said, yeah, like all those fat, all those things I said that are completely untrue. And he got me to experience the power of words rather than trying to convince me of the power of words. And so the disruptive thinking aspect is a way to get the audience to experience the message, but you need the message clarity. And then the disruptive thinking is a tool that that makes sense. No, it makes absolute sense. In fact, I didn't see it that way until I actually listened to the CD, and then I was thinking about it because I wasn't there when Darren won the championship, but I had the World Championship DVD. I did see Mohammed Katani's speech. When you go back and you look at it that way and you analyze it that way, you go, wow, that makes sense. Because at first, I too just thought, oh, well, this is just a stunt. This is just a gimmick. It's amazing what you can learn from less than seven and a half minutes. It, it truly is. And what I see with Darren, Darren did that. And there have been so many people that have copied it, trying to do something dramatic on stage. And they didn't understand the real thing Darren was doing. It was, he, was just, he was in the head of the audience and he was getting them to experience something. I've seen people start speeches in the international speech contest, hanging upside down on chairs, standing backwards, all sorts of things that are gimmicks. They're just simply a gimmick to set themselves apart from the audience what I saw with Darren was that, and I, I was fortunate I was there and I got to experience it. I was a good speech coach at the time. I was a good evaluator. I did have those skills in. I'm looking at this and I was sitting there going, you're killing it. You're killing it. And talking to Darren, he said, the reason I knew that people thought that is he gave that speech so many times to so many clubs and everybody told him, you're staying down too long. And it made him uncomfortable because he was staying down too long. And he decided to then use that to make the point. And that's when I go back to the thing we were just talking about. He was out there testing it on audiences to find out what their reaction was. He was out of his own head and his own brilliance. He was getting the feedback from the audiences to see what they thought. And that's, how he, that's why he knew it would have that effect on the audience, because he had perfected that on audiences. As our time is coming to a close, I'm just going to ask, uh, gentlemen, if you want to offer any just last thoughts for those who are interested in the art of competing, and we're going to be talking about where people can get the CD in a moment. Any quick thoughts in terms of takeaways for them? The, the big thing I would just recommend to people is don't get hung up on losing speech contests and don't get hung up on inept ridiculously bad judging in speech contests, which happens in Toastmasters. We're a organization where everybody's learning how to do everything. The key thing is the takeaways you have from the experience that you learn from the experience that you put yourself into. And it's not about being great at Toastmasters. It's about taking those lessons you learn in Toastmasters and applying them to life so that you're living your life in a more productive manner, more competent manner than you would be otherwise. I said, nobody's ever asked to see my trophy, all those things. It's like, it's not about trophies. It's not about ribbons. It's about competence. It's about you being the best you can be at what you want to be doing in your life, not meeting some grade and getting accolades from the, from the minions. Because I've talked to so many people who think that, oh, you win the world championship and they sort of act like all your problems are over and your life is set. I got to tell you, you get all, you have all the problems you had before and you have a whole new set of problems you didn't have. The cool thing is about the competitions is that it, like I said, it pushes us outside of our comfort zone. And I think if we really embrace that, it makes us better people. Sage advice. 
And Russ, final thoughts? Yeah, final thoughts. Uh, you know, in 2014, I competed. I placed second at district, and that was to go to Kuala Lumpur. And I mean, I really, really wanted to go to Kuala Lumpur. And, and several people came up to me after, and they said, are you upset? And I said, no. And all of these other years I've competing, I would have been devastated. I would have been beating myself up. I would have been blaming everybody. But I had this, what Lance was talking about at the beginning of this conversation, this mind shift happened a few years ago. And if you stop thinking about the trophy and just think about sharing your message and, and setting personal bests, it takes a lot of the pain away when you don't move on to the next level. Because if, if you take out the searching for the championship, which, yeah, would be lovely to be known as the world champion of public speaking but if you take that out and just change the way you think about these contests as a developmental process it just makes the experience so much better that's excellent the art of competing is available on cd and i would assume that it's available both from russ and from lance and i'm sure there'll be a competition for it will it where can people get the the cd gentlemen well actually i'll answer that greg thank you so much for asking <laughs> asking that question on behalf of Lance and I, we are only selling this CD out of Canada. Um, okay, no, we're not. <laughs> you can get this wonderful CD at lancemillerspeaks.com or at russdantu.com. We both have them, and uh, they're selling like crazy. They're selling really well. I've sold a ton up here in Canada, and I, I know from speaking to Lance, uh, he's had great success when we first got this out as well. So that's where you can get them. Russ Dantu, Lance Miller, thank you so much for being on the show. All the best in your future endeavors. And Lance, you can't compete anymore, but I'm sure, Russ, that you're going to be going for it. Absolutely hope so. Thanks so much, Greg. Thanks, Lance. Appreciate it. Absolutely, folks. Thanks, gentlemen. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies. A new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com.